Coming up on this episode of DL Weekly, Disneyland raised ticket prices. We have the details, along with some discounts, a new Star Tours option. It is refurbishment season, the last of the holiday crowds. We talk with the former Disneyland maintenance cast member and more. DL Weekly starts now. Welcome to DL Weekly, a podcast about Walt's original Magic Kingdom, Disneyland. We cover the latest news and information from the resort, test our skills at trivia, and have a discussion about the parks every week. We invite you to send in your feedback and stories. Our contact information can be found at dlweekly.net. Now sit back, keep your hands and arms inside the podcast, and enjoy this week's show. Welcome to this episode of DL Weekly for the week of January 9th, 2019. I'm Teresa Urban. And I'm Teg Bushman. We'd like to send a shout out and a big thank you to Carrie M for joining Patreon at the cast member level and to Liz D for upgrading from Park Hopper to cast member, as well as Chris H upgrading from Park Hopper to annual pass holder. This support helps us make DL Weekly possible. Our patrons get some pretty nice perks like access to our Discord chat, live show recordings, some DL Weekly swag, and more. If you'd like to learn more, head on over to dlweekly.net slash support and now it's time for Teresa to pull the first name out of the Mickey box to determine the Patreon guest for this upcoming episode. All right, so mix them up real good and nice here. We pulled Richard S. So Richard, congratulations. You were the one that was pulled out of the hat to be our next guest on the show. We will be in contact with you to figure out what works best for you or if you're interested. Thanks, Richard. Yes, thank you, Richard. And now, out of the Halloween bag, the first mm. time we are pulling out to get a free item from our merchandise yes, store. Yes, we are able to give away a free item from our merchandise store because we hit a pretty big milestone on Patreon. Um, as you guys remember, we've been talking about for a while now how our next goal, we were going to then start giving away something from our store monthly. So this is pretty exciting. I've been Month looking number forward one. to... Who gets to kick it off? Name. So, dun, 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 dun. Alex Waltz, you are f- our first winner of something from our merchandise store. And you're listening to our live stream right now. So that's even more exciting. So congratulations. Did you know that you can rate and review Deal Weekly on iTunes every six months? If you haven't reviewed us recently, please do so as it helps get our ranking better and allows the community to grow. Well, we've launched another way for you to join in the conversation with the community. You can head over to dlweekly.net slash forum to be taken to our new forums. The forums are free and open to everyone to chat about Disney parks all around the world. So head on over and make a quick post about yourself in the introductions forum and join in on the discussion. If you want to have a voice in the podcast and our discussion topics, please head over to dlweekly.net slash vote to register your choice for the next discussion topic. We've been getting a lot of great responses, so please keep up the great suggestions for the future of the show. Now let's get to the news. Well, as we mentioned on last week's episode, ticket prices were scheduled to go up probably in February, but in a move that caught everyone by surprise, they went up this past Sunday with no warning. The latest increases have been met with a lot of disappointment from Disney fans, as it is really starting to price out lower-income families from being able to go. The increases ranged from $7 for the one-day one-park value ticket all the way up to a $370 increase for the Premier Passport, which offers access to all U.S. Disney theme parks. Additionally, parking was increased from $20 a day to $25 a day, and MaxPass increased to $15 per ticket per day, up from $10. So 
I know Tag and I have had a lot of feelings about this, so we'll try and keep this short. Overall, I mean, we're just disappointed. I mean, un- unfortunately, we love the parks so much that I don't know if it matters how much it costs for us to get in. We'd probably still go, but our wallets and our bank accounts aren't happy with that. But the thing that is just that the thing that stood out to me the most, which is kind of random, was the max pass increase going from $10 a day per ticket to $15 per day per ticket. You were surprised? I was, because for me, that seems like a pretty, I thought that they were going to creep it up a little bit more, not make it such a sting, but that's a 50% increase. So just, you know, a family of four, one day went from $40 extra to use Max Pass to $60, 20 bucks extra for the same service. And that's one day. That's not if you have a five-day park hopper ticket yeah. that you're using that on. I, I'm not that surprised only because at, at first, when they first came out with Max Pass, I actually thought nobody's going to pay 10 extra dollars for this service. But everybody, a lot of people are doing it, right? I would say almost everybody is doing it. In our chat, people have said before they even knew this was going to happen, they had said that they think it's a great deal and they would pay more. They'd pay $20 for it. Well, they raised it to 15. So they must have known from talking to people that they like this service and it's worth that money to them. I think it's it's good considering the fact <clears throat> that when we went to Disney World, uh, James and I paid, I think it was $150 for the for the seven or eight days we were there f- just for the photo pass. And Max Pass includes that. So if you go, if you do five days at the park, it's a $75 charge. I don't know. I I don't like it. I don't like having to pay more, but I don't think it's the end of the world. Well, military personnel won't have to feel the pricing increases just yet. Disneyland is offering special discounted three and four day park hopper tickets starting at $178 and are valid all year except for spring break from April 14th through the 22nd and Christmas from December 22nd on. The PhotoPass collection add-on is also available for a discounted rate of $49. For full details, please see the link in our show notes. Yeah, so this is a nice uh, this is a nice discount for military folks, and I kind of wish that they just kind of offer this type of thing all the time. But I understand how it goes because they usually offer some form of military discount with some of the tickets. So um, I think that's good. It makes yeah. it. Yeah, and I was surprised and, to see that it went all year. Well, and the thing that's really nice about it is you really don't. There's really not too much of the year that you're not allowed to use these discounted tickets, which usually there's always a catch with these things, right? Right. Yes, you get a better price, but you have to use it in this small window of time. So it's really nice that there's really, you know, you could have these nice special discounted tickets and go to the premiere grand opening of Galaxy's Edge because that is not in the little blackout thing. Right. Absolutely. Well, in an attempt to get Southern California residents to the resort before Galaxy's Edge opens, the resort is offering special ticket pricing for locals. Now through May 20th, you can purchase a three-day, one-park-per-day ticket for $179 or a three-day park hopper for $234. Just like the military discount, spring break is blocked out and the tickets must be used by May 23rd. So this is good till... Up to Galaxy's Edge, basically. Yes, up to Galaxy's Edge. If you want to sneak in and get one last trip before the masses descend on the park for the opening. And you live in Southern California. And you live in Southern California, yes. That is the 
big thing on this next one or that last one in an interview with Barron's Disney CEO Bob Iger was was quoted when talking about bringing intellectual properties like Star Wars Marvel and Frozen to the parks as saying it's not like I'm going to ride some nondescript coaster somewhere that maybe is themed like India or whatever no you're going to Arendelle and you're going to be you're going to experience Frozen with Anna and Elsa or you're going to fly a banshee into Pandora this caused diehard fans of original properties in the parks like the Haunted Mansion and Expedition Everest, which was the attraction he was referring to, to wonder if any future attractions would be non-IP related. So I know this sparked a big thing for me because I have been hoping and praying to all the Disney gods um, that we would get another original attraction in the park someday because I just, the ones that hold the dearest place in my heart are the originals and are the ones that are completely standalone things i think it's kind of cool that we have actually had the reverse effect that there are original attractions in disneyland that have stemmed different movie franchise from it instead of the other way around that we have an attraction based on a movie that's already been popular i feel like and i'll get off my soapbox soon i feel like the original ideas are timeless and they're classic they're going to withstand pretty much anything whereas movies kind of fade in and out yeah. You know, of their popularity. Like Frozen, for example, was huge several years ago. I think the popularity is kind of dwindling. I mean, yeah. yes, people still love Frozen, but it's already kind of started to dwindle a little bit. Things like the switch up um, with Fantasia, or Fantasia, Fantasmic, with taking Peter Pan out and replacing it with the newer, more current Pirates section. Mm-hmm. You know, even that's, you know, that's kind of showing that too, that the classic, the classic old school movie yeah is being replaced by the next the new the next new shiny thing well i think the thing that most people were upset about is it it, there is no doubt in anybody who's been to disney world and animal kingdom that expedition everest is an amazing attraction and i think the initial backlash was the fact that he kind of described it as like some nondescript coaster that's maybe themed like India. And it was really disparaging to something that people loved a lot. That would be kind of like him saying, oh, it's like, you know, like a carnival haunted house kind of attraction. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what it is. He did go back and say that he loves Expedition Everest and he wasn't meaning it like that or whatever. And um, the other controversy around this interview was that Barron's went back and people are saying their journalistic integrity is not very good because they modified the quote to be edited to where he wasn't saying that. So, uh, I don't know. I, I'm sad. Uh, the interview itself was good. We'll have a link uh, in the show notes to the interview that Bob Iger did. I thought it was a really good um, interview that kind of talked about where they're going and what their thought process behind everything is. And I think that they're on the right track with a lot of things. I just think when they talked about the theme parks, I was a little disappointed with kind of how he looked at them. Um, He does hold them very high. He just wants a lot of IP in them. That's all. If you enjoy riding Star Tours but don't like waiting a long time and don't mind riding alone, you're in luck. A single rider line has come to the attraction. The new line is confusing to guests and hard to manage for cast members, so hopefully they will improve the experience. For now, you enter the exit of the attraction through the Star Trader where it says, Do not enter funny enough, and a cast member will fill uh, empty single seats with you. You know, I'm really curious to see how frequently this gets used, because it seems every time that I have been on this attraction, they do a pretty good job of not having open seats, I feel. So I wonder how often or how many seats 
they are actually kind of shifting and filling in with a single rider. I can't playing. I can't ever think of a time that I was on Star Tours <clears throat> that there was an empty seat. Yeah. I mean there are certain attractions like for some reason Radiator Springs um pops in mind because you have three people in each row. Yeah. And three's That's kind a of weird a weird number. number yeah. You know, so when Vern and I went, clearly there was two of us in the row. So a single rider sat yeah. in that third seat. And I feel like that's, you know, same thing. There's families of four, you know, there's mm-hmm. six three, is a yeah, really six odd is number. Six is a really odd number. So I understand. And a lot of the other attractions seem to have six as the, you know, the seating capacity for the, the ride vehicles. So yeah. that makes sense to me. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess I don't know how many seats there are in one of the Star Tours cabins to know. But yeah, anyways, it seems like it kind of, it evens itself out pretty well. The cast members do a good job yeah. of um, kind of filtering in. Oh, another one that's, um, that coincidentally you're wearing the shirt for, Tower of Terror or Guardians of the Galaxy. That's another one that I don't know if I've ridden with an empty seat. Just because it's like the way that they yeah, kind because of situate they, the Yeah, the seats. way that they have it situated and how well the cast members do at kind of filtering people through. Because they do a really good job of saying how many are in your party. They kind of... yeah you know pre-filter you before you even get to the lineup area yeah same thing with like soren too yeah be prepared to see a lot of construction walls if you're going to the resort in the next couple of months as it is refurbishment season sleeping beauty castle is already behind walls but the walkthrough is still open until january 17th other favorites like the haunted mansion will be down from now until january 18th for the removal of the haunted mansion holiday overlay then it's a small world will follow from january 22nd to february 1st to see the full list check out the link in our show notes at dlweekly.net yep it's that time of year um it's gonna be the slowest time i guess if there is a slow time at the resort anymore uh i'm really excited to see what they do with sleeping beauty castle me too Uh, i did see some pictures of the walls that they have around Mm -hmm. sleeping beauty castle and i think they were done very well because they're not just like that plain wall with like some painting like they look like nice castle gates they look regal they do look (laughs) regal Um, of course haunted mansion going back to its regular thing so you're probably okay with that i'm okay with that i'm okay with all the haunted mansions though so right i do think it's it's nice that when they do when they first put the holiday overlays on for the haunted mansion and for um it's a small world it's nice that they don't have both of those attractions closed at the same time for either them putting the the overlays on or for them to take it off i think it you know it might feel a little odd that the the holiday overlay for it's a small world is on so long after the holiday right but it also gives people a nice big chunk of time to be able to go and experience that overlay Well, as we reported last week, Ballast Point in downtown Disney is very close to opening to the public. They had a cast preview over the weekend, and the menu has been announced. It's pretty standard menu, including appetizers, salads, and flatbreads, sandwiches and burgers, main dishes, and of course, desserts. Items include Wahoo beer-steamed mussels. I'm not shinganjing this, am I? No, no, no. That's what was on the menu. (laughs) Okay. Smoked chicken wrap. Soirizo and roasted cauliflower tacos and creme brulee cheese. Oh, creme brulee cheesecake. That I sounds amazing. I put that one in there just for you. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. I, yeah, you know, so it's interesting because there's a lot of kind of classic things on the menu that you see at kind of any of this type of like brew pub style restaurant. There's lots of burgers. There's wings, of course, fries, that sort of thing. But then they throw some really cool things in like steamed mussels. And, you know, 
there was a lot of um there was a couple of vegan friendly options on there definitely some vegetarian options too which is nice it's nice to have that diversity on the menus um but they were really clever i thought the soy riso and roasted cauliflower tacos actually sounded really delicious yeah, the other thing I'm excited about this is it looks like it has a really nice like outdoor upstairs patio that I think would be really cool yes. to go sit out and uh, experience and kind of chill with Downtown Disney. Um, I definitely think when we're there, we'll have to like check it out. There's going to be so much stuff for us to check oh, out. Good thing we're there for, what, nine days. Well, you say this, but that's going <laughs> to fly. That's still not enough time, I know. <laughs> well, the monorails at Disneyland have a new wrap on them. This time, it's for the world's biggest mouse party. The new wrap features Mickey and a paintbrush on monorail blue. So I thought they would have learned their lesson from when they did the Incredibles one. Maybe they did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was weird because I looked at it at first when I saw this today on Twitter. I thought that it was a Walt Disney World monorail because it's white. It's I haven't seen yeah. a white monorail at Disneyland for years. There's and, hints of blue. <laughs> yeah, but I, it looks nice, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, I'm interested to see what the other monorail wraps look like because I'm almost wondering if we're going to get different versions of Mickey. Probably. If we're going to have Mickey through the years. Well, we'll, what about Minnie? Oh, maybe Minnie, too. That's true. But yeah, so I wonder if we're going to have like a Steamboat Willie-themed one and maybe more of a modern-themed Mickey. I feel like the one that's on here is kind of like the classic like 80s and 90s version of Mickey. That's what sticks out to me. I could be wrong. I don't know my Mickeys that well. We'll find (laughs) out. Well, in a stunning turn of events, if you visited the resort on New Year's Day, crowds were reasonable with wait times that were very manageable, especially compared to the day before. The last weekend of the holiday season brought the crowds back for one last taste of the festivities, and wait times climbed again. It's amazing to me that How much New Year's Eve could be yeah. so crazy, yeah. and then literally, what, six, eight hours later? Yeah, yeah right? Calm. Apparently, New Year's Day is the day to go. Maybe it's because everyone's made their New Year's resolution that they're going to save money in 2019, so they had to get their Disney-ness out. Or maybe everybody's tired or hungover. They they spent too long. They were at the park too late on the 31st. They couldn't handle any more fun. Well, it was open until 2 a.m., so they probably by the time they got home, they were beat. Well, the holiday season has come to an end at the resort, but the big question on everyone's mind has been, did Santa ever climb back into his sleigh? Well, we can happily report that he did. The sleigh appears to have been repaired in a way that is strong enough to hold even the most presents, milk and cookies. Yes. I'm uh, so happy for Santa. I was surprised that they were able to get that back in back together so quickly, mm-hmm. but um, obviously uh, they know what they're doing back there. And and this sucker, I think before it it looks like it used to maybe tilt or something a little bit, but uh, it, it's sturdy. Yes, and it's not going anywhere now. I'm curious to see if we will see an updated version of this float for next season, maybe. or if it's if it's staying as is and it's good to go now. Yeah, maybe. Well, finally, a color I can get on board with. With the release of the Potion Purple headbands, there will be some purple treats that are coming as well. Of course, there'll be a purple glove macaron that includes blackberry and currant buttercream and blackberry currant jam center. The purple rose, a blueberry mousse with blackberry currant and lemon center. The lavender milk tea with lemon popping pearls purple whipped cream and lavender sugar for the complete list check out the link in our show notes i will tell you i saw these uh potion purple headbands and i know they're like mini headbands i would love to see you in one but (laughs) this color purple is amazing i love purple 
and I love it. And then they've got the spirit jersey that's purple. And I don't like spirit jerseys, but I kind of want one of these. Some way, somehow, I will I will own a pair of those <laughs> purple headbands. And we are going to get a photo of you oh, in Lord. them because I would love to see that. <laughs> I, but but then they had a purple glove macar- macaron it's on there. It's a cute glove. It's a very cute. It's a very like cartoon, whimsical Mickey glove. They have a purple Mickey cake pop. Mm-hmm. Everything you name about it, this purple thing I love. They made it purple. <laughs> you know, I was really skeptical because they had the they had the rose gold yep. stuff that I didn't like. There's a purple churro, and then they had that millennium pink that I didn't like. Um, oh yeah, there's a purple churro now, which mm-hmm. I think is just colored purple, it, which I think yeah, is a little I think strange. So too, but but um, love it's it. It's exciting still. It's purple. Well, now we take a trip to Trivia Land, where producer James tries to stump us with Disney trivia. He'll read us the question, we'll attempt to answer it, and James will give us the correct answers after the discussion. What do you have for us this week, James? How bad are we going to get hammered this week? I, I feel like you got got one in the bag. Oh, and, God, let's hope. And then you can blame the listeners for two of the other ones. And then one I just stumbled upon and think is absolutely hilarious. So, uh, oh, the first question... Let's warm you up. Okay. How many mountains does Disneyland have? Are you counting... Wait. Are you counting just Disneyland Park, or are you counting both parks? Just Disneyland Park. Space. Space. uh, Matterhorn. Splash. Splash, Matterhorn. Big Thunder. Oh, yes. Big Thunder. Four. Yeah. All right. That was really funny, because I mentally went around the perimeter of the park, and then you're like, Big Thunder. I'm like, why did... Oh. I didn't even mentally go through that part of the park. But you did the Matterhorn. That's also kind of in the middle of the park. But it's right next to space. Yeah, I suppose. So, you know... All right, next question. In 1985, a dance club marketed to young people was opened in Fantasyland. Oh, yeah, what was the dance club called? Oh, I know this. Oh, what the heck was it? And if you need a hint, I can give you a no hint. No hints. It e- should be easy enough. Oh, just because you were alive then and Teresa wasn't yeah, doesn't I mean. <laughs> I actually, my, the first time I was there, I went there and I thought it was weird. And it was very 80s. It's something really. It's like don't look at the chat. Doug just said it in chat. (laughs) (laughs) Doug's trying to help us just out. Let me think. Let me think. Because it's where the magical map is now. Yes. Yep. Well, you're not supposed to confirm, James. I am happy to help Teresa with this one. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's young people banding together. Whatever. Um. Think of video. Video. (laughs) Videopolis. I concur with Videopolis. All right, we'll find out. <laughs> Third question, and this one was... I th- I, you were, like, so worried that we weren't going to get that. I, I wasn't sure. I'm like, I feel <laughs> like it's weird enough. <laughs> she didn't look. She was being very look. good. I didn't look. I You might not be able to hear my answer in the microphone because I wasn't that close to it, but it's okay. All right, third question, and this comes from Lauren W., uh, what inspired the Fireflies in Pirates of the Caribbean? What inspired them? Yes. Or what inspired the Imagineers and Walt to put Fireflies in the attraction? Because it seemed like a night sky. I don't know. I, I thought it... Mm, I mm, I feel like I may be making this up. But I thought what else that the fireflies happened because they had envisioned the blue bayou wasn't there right right away, I don't think. But that was always part of the plan to have the blue bayou. So it gave the guests something to kind of look out over the dark bayou for. Kind of created a more romantic atmosphere for their restaurant. 
No, whether or not that's right, that's some good logic. (laughs) (laughs) Teresa's totally inaccurate. Sometimes I read facts of Disneyland. Yeah, sometimes I read too much Disney history, and it kind of all gets jumbled. (laughs) Because I know I read about that. I know I did, but who knows? That's why I ask you the hard-hitting questions every week. Yeah, but you think that that random stuff like that would stick? It doesn't. (laughs) Nope. All right, and our fourth question. This one comes from Daniel. And I got to tell you the story behind this. So Daniel submitted a bunch of questions this week to me. Um, He put his time to good use because he was um, called for jury duty. (laughs) So while he was waiting, he put together some Disney trivia for me. So Way to serve your time yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what was the what was the so the, the question i picked for tonight is what type of fish could visitors catch from the ris- rivers of america around the time disneyland opened oh i knew this at one point i don't know it anymore carp i don't know i'm gonna say trout well we'll we'll find out if you pulled in the big one oh, after God. the discussion face palm <laughs> All right, well, this week for our discussion topic, we are speaking with the author of Elbow Grease and Pixie Dust, Memories of Disneyland Maintenance by Rand Boyd. So let's welcome to the podcast, Rand Boyd. How are you doing, Rand? All right, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's a really quite a pleasure and an honor, actually, to be on your show. Oh, well, we're really excited to talk to you. So Rand sent out his book to us a couple months ago, and so I was very, very excited to read this. So I am very excited to discuss it with you since... I, I just have more questions as I, oh, I assume all of you, if you guys have either read this book or if it's on your to read book or perhaps maybe after this podcast, it will be on your to read Disneyland book. Mm-hmm. It, it was just a wealth of information of things that I had never really learned or read that much about before. So I'm very excited about this. Yes. But first things first. Oh, um, yes. Rand, I don't know if you've listened to our podcast before and if you haven't, that's fine. But we like to kind of um ask some people or ask people who are on the show with us the same couple of few questions. Um, so the first thing that I would like to ask you is what is your Disney story? And we kind of call your Disney story like basically how did you fall in love with the parks or what kind of got you interested? So, you know, I, I, I'm a local, I'm a Southern California local. So I, so Disneyland has always been a part of my life in some fashion. Um, you know, like a lot of folks, uh, we weren't we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't go. It was quite the quite the treat to, to go um, when I was when I was a kid. But I think there's some moments though that stick out. My uh, my very first kiss was at Disneyland. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It was at the. Uh, I mean, it's such a stereotype, but it was at the uh, wishing well there. Nice. And, yeah. So I have that, and then you know, uh, a memory that's always stuck in my head was when I was actually already working there. And it was the time that I was walking, uh, you know, in the old days, the, when, when it rained, there was no one ever in the park. And so the employees, we pretty much had the park to ourselves, except for the occasional out-of-towners that you'd see running around in uh, under umbrellas or something. And, and I remember a, a, an afternoon, and it was raining pretty hard, and I was walking across the um, New Orleans Square area up on top there. And... Uh, and I just stopped underneath some trees that were there in front of Cafe Orleans. And I was standing there under the trees, watching the rain come down on the big river. And, uh, and just, it was just such a pretty, pretty, very relaxing, uh, very zen sort of. All these years later, this, uh, to this day, I still, I still remember that moment. And there was a couple other moments like that that kind of stand out. But they're usually those, those types of, type of reflected type moments. 
that really stick with me after all these years. Oh, very neat. That very is a cool uh, that is a cool Disney memory to have. So cool. as some of you listeners may have guessed or picked up, Rand did obviously work in the parks for quite a, quite some time. So Rand, do you go to the parks often as a as a guest? And if so, what how do you usually do you have do you have a certain way that you tackle the park? I guess would be a good way of saying it. So when you enter Disneyland, do you when you're in the hub usually go left towards Adventureland first? Do you go forward towards Fantasyland, or do you kind of swing right towards Tomorrowland? Oh, that's, you know that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> I haven't really thought about it. It's been such a long time, actually. I mean, I think the last time I went to Disneyland, the guest was with my partner Eileen, and uh, I think we were there for some. Oh, I was. I think it was for her thirty-fifth. Service uh, 35th or something like that, or 40th uh, uh, service uh, dinner. Oh, cool. And, uh, and it was, uh, yeah, they, they had closed off of all of uh, Northern Square and, and they had it over there. And it was, Very it was kind nice. of a weird little party thing. And uh, that was the last the last time uh, that I've actually been there. Uh, I we, we go to Florida. Um, I like, I actually prefer Walt Disney World um, because we can go there as uh, guests. There's, there's oh, no luggage. Sure. You know, the problem is when we, when we go to the park, it's it's inevitably, you know, as we're walking down Main Street, it's like, oh, I remember so-and-so who used to work there. Do you remember, you know, that accident that happened there? Do you remember, oh. you know, that, that project? And it's just a lot of um, luggage. Um, and so you, it's hard to enjoy the park as a guest when you've got all that luggage. And so that's what I like about Florida is we can go there and and we can just enjoy it. I feel like if I were to have the same kind of situation like you, that I would go to Disney World and I would be like, oh, I wonder if they do it kind of like that here. <laughs> and like, I do a lot of comparisons. Because the first time I went to yeah. Disney World, that's all I did was compare it to Disneyland over and over again. And this is this is different and that's different. And this is similar, but kind of different. Like, so I feel like working there would be the same thing. It's be like, oh, I wonder if they do something, you know, the certain way or whatever. Yeah, a, a little bit. We do a little bit of that. Um, you know, uh, Eileen was a machinist, and so so often when we're in the attractions, you know, she'll spot something, and and we'll talk about the the uh, you know the mechanical aspects or the technical aspects, some some part of the show or uh, or attraction. So, but but normally we can leave most of that at the gate and and uh, and just enjoy the enjoy the parks. It's just guests. I feel like it's important too to let our listeners know that. Um, Eileen is also part of the book. Uh, the whole first section is about uh, Eileen working mm-hmm. at the work, and the and the second half is about you working at the park. So um, uh, the the part that I read about with Eileen there, that like she was the first female machinist there, and I thought that that was really spectacular. There's kind of a whole story that goes along with that, and, and all the different things that she had to learn to to get certified or whatever to become a machinist there and stuff. Like it's just. Oh, it's Crazy. absolutely fascinating. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. In fact, that's why I wrote the book was because of her. Um, so she was, yeah, she was the first uh, uh, female machinist. She uh, she hired in in 78, and she was one of uh, four women. Uh, the other three women were in different other areas, and it was an attempt by um, the Affirmative Action uh, Program to uh, readjust uh, gender inequalities that they had identified at the park. Uh, the maintenance division had always been, well, completely male, unless you were a uh, an administrative assistant or something. Huh. So that's that's how she got in. But oh my gosh, yes, yeah, she 
even from, and so that's why I wrote the, like I said, that's why I wrote the book because the, uh, her, she'd done so much for the park and she had done, she worked so hard and she was just always in, in the most important projects and, you know, uh, so on and so forth. And she's never going to get, she's never going to get a window on main street and she's never going to get any of these other types of accolades that are reserved for high up mucky muck. So, you know what? I thought the best thing I could do to uh, honor her and, and maybe tell a little bit of a love story too, was to write a book about her. And so, um, and so that's what I did. And, and I also wanted her voice to be there. So that's why I didn't write it in third person for her. So I, I wrote it as she was, as if she was speaking and, uh, and I tried to capture her voice. Other people that know her that have read it have told me that I succeeded in doing that. And, uh, and uh, and, it and it was based off of uh, anecdotes that she's told me over the years, or, or and then also I took um, uh, several hours of oral histories where I'd ask questions things like that, and and huh. then so that's how I built up uh, her story. It was that way, and then and then I figured because she was at a much higher level uh, in in the operation than I was, I figured that my story would then uh, be a good uh, bookend to her story, and then I can tell the larger story of what maintenance was like in the 1980s. 90s and uh, hmm. and all the different things that we did and that and so but i'm glad that you were able to read uh, her part because it's really that's really what the whole book is about so what what was her first reaction when you kind of came to her with this idea about wanting to write this book and kind of having her be kind of almost the centerpiece or the star of it was she kind of was she excited about it was she maybe a little shy about it how did she feel yeah all those things <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, you know how, how it is. And you talk to anybody that works there, and you, and, and for any long length of time, and you ask them, you know, questions about what they do, and they kind of poo-poo it and say, "Oh, well, you know, I just go and work there." And so, <laughs> so she was like that too. And uh, when I was uh, when I was dating her, I'd ask her questions about her career, and she would uh, tell me these stories, and and I was just amazed because I didn't know. I mean, I knew of her all these years, but I never knew her, and. Uh, and then she would say, oh, we did this, I did that, <laughs> da, 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 da. And I said, oh, my gosh. So when I remember the first thing I told her was, you know, you know, you're quite the feminist. And she got all upset when I told her that. And she says, I'm no feminist. I just wanted to work at Disneyland and, and da, 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 da. And, uh, and I said, oh, no, 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 you did this and you did that. And, and in time when women just didn't do those things. So, um, so when, I, when I did come to her and told her that I had gotten a book contract uh, from Theme Park Press to write this thing, she was, she was rather, um, I think at one time, you know, at one point excited, but at the same time kind of like dismissive in that, well, what's there to say? There's nothing to say. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just the job. And, uh, that's, and that's kind of how she sees it. But, uh, I, it's, I see it a little more than that. So do you think that's still how she views the book or is she kind of seeing that people are enjoying it now and seeing what people have to say? So maybe she's realizing like, oh, wow, you know, maybe what I did do was pretty special and pretty you know, ahead of my time and that sort of thing. Yeah, a little bit of that. I think it's taken it's taken some time for that to uh, kind of sink in. But as she goes, uh, as she talks to people, people read the book and they talk to her. She went with me to a social event uh, the other night and she was kind of surprised at all these folks that were uh, interested in her story. And so I think she's starting to realize that yeah she maybe she did something of course it was with no intent she sure. just did it because she wanted mm -hmm. to do it and that's probably the best way you know there was no uh there was no uh, agenda she just she just wanted to live her life the way she wanted to live it and I, man i talked to i talked like she's 
gone, but no, it's not. <laughs> In fact, she's still working, still works there. She's she still, does? Oh, yeah. She just hit 40 years uh, last year. Wow. Oh, wow. Good for her. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and that's why, why she, she, her name isn't on the book, be honest with you, because uh, because she still works there. So, sure. um, so it had to be, it had to be coming from me. So, well, so I mean, D- I Dis- Disney's not, uh, probably not a fan of employees writing books about behind the scenes stuff. Cause they're so protective of it. Well, exactly. She, she'd get in trouble if she wrote something under her own name. So, and that was yeah. something that was clear that was made clear to me by the publisher. And so, uh, uh, so as long as it was, it was all my words, then, then that's fine. Gotcha. Interesting. Sneaky. Well, I'm glad you figured that out, that little loophole and brought us her story. Because um, for those yeah. of you listening, um, this Elbow Grease and Pixie Dust, again, that's what this the book is called that we're talking about. Just It's just fascinating. So I'm not very technically inclined, but um, I know Tag, really, Tag is. And so he can read these things and like picture what's going on. Oh, yeah. Well, even just how you worded this, Rand, I was able to picture what you were talking about. So that that's huge because I do not, I'm not technical at all. So it's, it was just amazing to me. I mean, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but there is a, it's a much more in-depth behind the scenes look at what goes into some of the things that that they do there to bring us our favorite attractions. I mean, I didn't realize that some of the, you're talking about how some of the parts for some of the different attractions, they actually physically fabricate. there, just different, like, that's crazy. Like bolts. And I don't know what, cause like I said, I'm not that technical, but um, just the fact that, you know, machinist wasn't just making sure like things were greased and whatever. No, it was physically building things from nothing because everything there is oh. so custom. Oh, exactly. Because so much of the technology, I mean, it was such a mix of high tech and and low tech. Uh, So much of the technology was very old, either from the 18th century or early 20th century. So we if we couldn't get parts, uh, then we had had to manufacture them or we jury rigs. So Eileen, that was a lot of what she did as machinists. And and that's what I did when I worked in the arcade shop. So, yeah, that's that's part of it. But same time. You know, you're working on something that's uh, from 1905, and then on the other part of your bench, you're working on something that's cutting edge. <laughs> What's amazing to me thinking about this, because I never, until I was reading this book, I never thought that, um, you know, there are things that just are either custom, because Disney does a lot of custom stuff, or it's just stuff that's just not made. Like, there's no way to get a replacement part. The only way you'd be able to complete your job would be creating the thing yourself or recreating the thing yourself. And I thought that was just fascinating because I don't think a lot of people think about that stuff, you know? I mean, you could even think about that like today with anything. I mean, can you, like, if you had an old cell phone, for instance, like, good luck finding a charging cable for it or something. You know what I mean? Like, people don't think about that stuff. Well, and we live in a world today that if something, you know, if something kind of gets outdated like that, it's such a consumable society that you either just replace it with something brand new that you can buy or, you know, you you don't spend that much time and effort and really love and passion to forge this out of your own hands. So I was just, I was just shocked, especially because, I mean, come on, Disneyland is not a small area. There is not, you know, just like one thing that they have to keep going. There's just so so much Thousands. involved with that it's just crazy to me that that you know that that goes on i'm just i was just very impressed with that yeah 
Oh, exactly. And that's just the strength of the division. It's always been the strength of the division is, is one, the passion, but more importantly, the tremendous amount of experience in, in just different, different areas. Uh, and so if it wasn't, I mean, so much of this, you know, uh, okay, so the, the common story is that some attraction is, is, is built or something, something is installed and then turned over to maintenance without uh, buyer leave. And then all of a sudden maintenance division has to figure out how to make these things uh, last. And, um, and if it wasn't for this uh, huge amount of experience and, and, uh, and passion that these, that these people have for their jobs, uh, none of this stuff would last more than the first six, eight months of operation. <laughs> Well, and then you got to think, you know, these, these, we'll take the Haunted Mansion, for example, that thing is running almost 20, I mean, it's not 24 seven, but it's just running constantly. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can't just not have it working for a time because whoops, this isn't going, you know, the wear and tear on the parts of these things is just crazy. People don't exactly, uh, people don't exactly, uh, treat the park with the care that I'm sure maintenance wishes they would. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, uh, p- talking about that, um, I had the honor of interviewing Fran Fields, and he was the, uh, the first, um, he ran the maintenance division back in the 60s and the 70s. And uh, he, one of the most important things that he and his team did it was they created the preventive uh, maintenance program. So up until the late 60s, uh, there was no preventive maintenance. They just kind of did things as they as they broke. They fixed things sure. It was all very much band-aids. And well, that's pretty went, amazing because isn't that kind of like a staple now of Disney is that they do lots of preventative maintenance? Oh, absolutely. But he had a, he and his uh, team had to, uh, to sell it to, to Walt Disney uh, because, you know, these folks were all, you know, ex or well, but uh, they all came from the movie industry where things were all temporary by the very nature of the mm-hmm. project. So, uh, and, and so it took some education to, uh, to get Walt Disney his, his management team to buy off on this. And their argument was, if we do preventive maintenance on, on the attractions, then they'll be up, which means pet people will be happier, which means that they'll be more efficient. And be, to Walt Disney's benefit, it didn't take much to, uh, to get him to see the, the ramifications of this. So a little bit of forethought, a little bit of money up front uh, would pay off in the long run. And so up until the 19, mid-1970s, when they finally got the program running, and there was a, other programs, too. The cycling program was also something very and uh, which was tied in with preventive maintenance. And, uh, and so between these two programs, that's what kept the, that's what kept the attractions up. And, uh, and it wasn't until the mid to late uh, 90s when uh, preventive maintenance was, uh, well, fell out of favor and, and certain outsiders decided that, that the company didn't need to spend that money. Up until that point, you know, we had a readiness factor of up in more than 90, 95%, which is unheard of. Yeah, I remember hearing a long time ago, I remember hearing something about, you know, something as simple that people can understand, like light bulbs, that I, I, had, I had heard. And I don't know if this is true. You can maybe maybe uh, get rid of this urban legend for me. But uh, that, that light bulbs on Main Street, they would keep a record of when they installed the light bulb and at like... 80% or something, they would replace it so they wouldn't have to worry about any light bulbs ever being out or whatever. Uh, was it, is that uh, an urban legend or is that something that kind of was part of a program like this? No, that's, that's sort of what had happened was they, they had a whole sub-department in the electrical department. It was just a lamp. It's called the, they were the lampers. And I don't think they really exist too much anymore, but uh, all Doesn't these seem folks, like it. 
would just go around and they would relamp. And so, of course, Main Street was was an important part of that uh, because, you know, Walt Disney just didn't want to see burned out lights. And so these people, they knew their jobs and they knew that uh, they knew the life expectancy of these different bulbs. And so they had uh, the different areas and the different buildings and the different uh, all on a, a rotating schedule that they would just go in and hit constantly. So and they knew that a certain lamp would last a certain amount of time. And so it was because of that, that that experience and that knowledge allowed them to keep the light bulbs always lit. And so they weren't changing out uh, fresh light bulbs. Not for the most part. Um, they were changing out burned ones, but they get them so quickly that you didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I still, I'm weird. I notice weird things like that. And so anytime I see pictures of the park or I'm in the park and I see bulbs out, I just think, that's very undisney like this bulb should be replaced. And when I worked in places that had bulbs for different things, I worked at a movie theater for a while. We were like on top of that stuff because we wanted, you know, people expect a certain level of quality from different places. And of course, Disney obviously is known for its quality. So things as simple as a light bulb, which Walt Disney knew, you know, garbage, graffiti, making sure everything was lit and operational, that restaurants and shops and stuff were open the whole time and nothing looked closed down uh, was really important. And I feel like, uh, we're getting kind of we we got out of it like you said the late 90s mid to late 90s kind of got some people that didn't understand that and they wanted to save some money but i feel like for a while there we kind of came out of that and i feel like the park is kind of going back uh towards that a little bit uh, more so than it used to hmm that's interesting i've heard i've heard the same thing so but, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, but remember, the, you know, my book was was written, one, to, to celebrate Eileen, but more importantly, to celebrate the, uh, the division. And I really do think that 1980s height of the maintenance division, as far as its professionalism and, and uh, its efficiency. And we, in 1990, we won the Best Maintenance Award, uh, which was a national award. Wow. I think that's volumes for the for the professionalism of the the people that work there i think eventually i mean hopefully the division will be back at level i'm not sure i i mean i've been out of it for uh since 2003 that's why i left the company so i can't speak too knowledgeably but my from just anecdotally from, from talking to other folks uh, that are still there uh, maybe the division isn't uh, isn't back at the 1980s level yet so hopefully it will be though <laughs> You know, I still think if you sit back and you just think about, well, just for light bulbs, for example, how many thousands of light bulbs there are all over both parks? Mm-hmm. How on earth do you, I mean, you're bound to have one go out without somebody getting to it ahead of time because there's just, I mean, that's impossible. The fact that yeah. they keep up. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? Human error. But the fact that they keep everything to the standard and the level that they do, and you can ex- you can expect everything to look a certain way each time you walk in, even though there's thousands upon thousands of people trampling through the park every day, is just mind-boggling to me when you really sit and think of it. So, so what if there's a light bulb maybe out here? It's not going to be out for very long, <laughs> you know. It's Hopefully. just it's just crazy to me. And perhaps they didn't get that light bulb because they're too busy fixing Pirates of the Caribbean, so you can enjoy that attraction instead. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I still know. just think it's amazing. It is. It is. It's a, the it's amazingly complex uh, operation. 
So I had a question. So Teresa just said something that triggered something. So you worked there until 2003. How mm-hmm. did how did the department change with the addition of a second whole park? When that happened, there was they were also in the process of reorganizing the division. So they we were traditionally organized in departments. So you'd have electrical department, the plumbing department, that sort of thing. So we were organized by by function, by craft. And then in the mid-90s, thereabouts, they, they got in their head that they wanted to create these maintenance teams. So uh, And so then what they did is they broke up the departments and they, they scattered the craftsmen out to the areas. And so now you had like a north team made up of machinists and electricians, you know, all the different crafts. You had a restaurant retail team. Uh, what else? An infrastructure team and, and things like that. So when they built uh, Disneyland California Adventure, uh, they continued that. And, uh, and they had maintenance team there where the crafts were kind of mixed together uh, based on uh, area. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it never worked. It didn't really. It wasn't really as efficient as the department organization. And uh, and I I still don't know why they stay with that. You know, nobody's asking me. So <laughs> yeah, it seems to me like it would be it would make more sense to have just a like a good team that works together that kind of tackles you know, the whole park or the whole two parks, rather than having somebody, you know, segregated into a certain area, you know, like north or west or whatever, because what, ha- you yeah. know, because then you don't know those people maybe working on the west side, let's say, uh, if something and they need to switch, you know, there's a bigger project on, let's say, the east side, they're not going to be as in tune with everything and know how those things operate. So it seems to me like it'd be better. I mean, from all the jobs I've ever worked, cross training has always been a good thing because then not, you know, if you lose one person, you know, things still operate. So it kind of feels the same way with these teams is if everybody can work on everything, you know, if you're down a person or two at a time, it's not the end of the world. Exactly. With the, with the department, the old department organization, then you also had the culture. So if you had all plumbers in one department or all archaic or was in one department, then when new people were hired in, uh, then they would be then uh, inculcated into the into the culture of that craft. And uh, and then they would also get the training. And, and you knew, and you just didn't know one area. You knew everything. You knew the entire park at mm-hmm. a necessity. And there was nothing, there was no problems with that. And so you're right. So one of the drawbacks to the team uh, arrangement is that you have you know, you could you could easily have electricians sitting, twiddling their thumbs on one side of the park while electricians on the other side of the park are running their, you know, running around with their heads cut off. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it's not the most efficient way, I think, to uh, to organize your labor. Sure. And 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 to your point, you're you're missing out on a lot of training and uh, and experience. You might have somebody who's super experienced on one side of the park, but but that person's isolated. And whereas in the old days, that person would be a mentor to the younger uh, craftspeople. And now that's lost. And, uh, yeah. and that's, that's one of the worst tragedies. You know, I wonder if they see if there's more turnover, how they have it kind of currently laid out versus how it used to be. If people aren't staying know. as longer, as you yeah, know, if people know. don't Sometimes, stay as long or not. Well, you know, the, 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 the maintenance division, you know, back of house, the, uh, areas always had more longevity than in park people. Sure, sure. And just because they tend to be uh, older, and so I don't know. I don't know if that's it. I think I think what happens is you know you you bring in a new uh, management team, new executives come in, and they have to show they have to justify their existence. 
So they sit there and go, hey, I just read this article in some journal and, you know, and hey, let's do this. You know, and, it'll, and usually if the bottom line is it'll save the company some, some money, then the company's going, going OK, great. Whether <laughs> yeah. it's the best decision or not, eh, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing. And, you know, when it comes to saving money, I don't understand how they could really justify it because, you know, uh, like, you know, they just raised the ticket prices by a lot of money with between the annual yeah. passes and the daily tickets. You know, it's not like Disney's hurting for money. I mean, the the parks, as my understanding is, the parks have always kind of carried the company uh, through good economy, bad economy, everything. The parks have always been profitable, is my understanding. So I don't know why they always worry about that they're not making enough money. They're making plenty of money. And by, I mean, just the people listening to this podcast, everybody who listens to this podcast is an avid Disneyland fan, and they love it. In fact, today in the chat, we were talking about the price increases, and everybody in there, uh, you know, they're very disappointed that the prices are going up, but a lot of people aren't not going to go. It's just going to be a little harder to go. So, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't either. It's it's always been that way. They've always, uh, I don't know. It's It's... That's that's one of those perennial questions. You know, we used to talk about it when I worked there. We used to talk about that kind of, those kind of decisions. And one of the you know one of the more cynical things that that we would say was that the, you know that the the company would make money in spite of it. And uh, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they've done a lot of things that that shouldn't have worked or shouldn't have given them money, but they still made money anyway. But. Exactly. Uh, moving on from that, uh, I did see a couple things that I wanted to specifically talk about because I think you can offer some knowledge that I, that I would love to know about. So I saw in the book that you worked overnights. What was it like being in Disneyland when nobody else was there except for oh, other yeah. maintenance yeah. workers? Oh, it was it was nice because you could get your work done. Probably <laughs> and, uh, quiet you could, too. <laughs> you could uh, you could you know ride through the park. You could drive through the park and get to places uh, much easier. And and uh, of course, you had to deal with uh, with the custodians washing the you know areas down, but and their hoses. But other than that, it was it was very nice. I remember one of my earliest uh, memories is I first started working there in '83 or. Uh, May 84, actually, I was on graveyard and, and, uh, I was driving along on an open tram and I was working with this fella and we were over on the West side. And I said, I go, what's that smell? And he goes, what smell? And I go, that smell. I don't know what that smell is. And, and he, he smelled and he goes, oh my gosh, he goes, that's the strawberry fields. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah, cause there used to be strawberry fields on the other side of uh, West street. And, uh, they're not there there. They haven't been there for so many years but that's what it is and so so there'd be that and i remember uh on graveyard we would deliver uh, food over to the island over to commissar's island and uh you'd see the the you'd wake up the birds as you drove over there to the island on the rafts and i don't know it was just it was different I, f I feel like it would be really kind of eerie because i've i've heard stories um from other people that that said that you know there are some noises in the park that just keep going, you know, like I believe Snow White's Wishing Well is one of those things that just kind of is on 24-7. And like, oh, so when yeah. the when the ambient music goes down in the parks, that kind of carries throughout the park. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So for some reason, the, the sound department will leave the background music on in some areas. Like, for example, uh, Frontierland, 
that that background music always runs. And uh, so when I was in the arcade shop, uh, one of the areas we were responsible for was shooting arcade. And I'd be out there working on those uh, on those rifles or on the coin mix or whatever it was we were working on. And I don't know how long the, the music loop was, maybe, but it wasn't long enough. So you, <laughs> uh, it, it didn't take very long for you to really get tired of hearing Rawhide for the 20th time or uh, <laughs> what was another one. So yeah, it actually kind of yeah you get kind of tired of hearing. Oh, that. I can imagine, and it's it's just that much louder too because you don't have the noise of all of the guests to kind of yeah exactly drown it out a little bit. So, Rand, what was is there anything that kind of stuck out to you? You know, something that you kind of learned about that you were pretty shocked to learn about when you first started working for Disney? Well, I mean, you know, I think I was probably shocked about everything because I was I was young. It was only the second second job I ever had, and. Uh, and I was always working with older people. I was always the youngest person in, in any of the departments I worked with. And so that kind of that kind of changes things. You're not working with people your own age. And, and so I was constantly meeting people that had these tremendous uh, experiences out in other, you know, other parts of the country or whatever. So I was always so I was always surprised mm-hmm. that way. I mean, uh, I didn't realize how provincial I grown up <laughs> or as an county boy, you know, until I started meeting people from other states, sometimes other country. So that was probably the biggest surprise. So I'm not going to give anything away from what I read in the book and some different stories that you told during the book, but I found it quite comical. Some of the different, um, I, I don't, I don't want to say pranks, but kind of some of the little things that you guys did to kind of goof around and you know maybe things that you guys weren't exactly supposed to be doing um but it sounds yeah. like maybe the graveyard shift was kind of a, a fun shift that you could kind of get away with a little bit more <laughs> yeah it was actually the so the way the way it, so we ran three, three shifts all almost all the departments ran three shifts a day shift a swing shift and a graveyard shift and um because of the way park hours were during summer or during the winter then uh, most of the work actual was most of the in-park work was done on uh, the graveyard. And then the, uh, a lot of the backs, then the other shops, the back, the stage shops were open days. I spent most of my time on swing shift, which was three in the afternoon to 11 or so at night. And uh, so during the summer, the park would be open until, you know, until those hours or, or then it would close winter hours, would close at six, six or seven. And that's when we would then get in and do a lot of maintenance, right when park closing. But, but because of that, a swing shift was probably the quietest shift. So we had a lot of downtime. And because of the, the nature of maintenance work, you're very reactive. So you're, you're monitoring radios, kind of like being a police officer. You're waiting for a call to come in, run sure. off and take, take care of it, and then, and then go back to your donuts. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, the, we, it you know, and also I was young. I was I was in my early twenties, and I was kind of full of piss and vinegar as you are, and and it was so it was easy to get bored. And next thing you know, you're doing you're getting into problems, and you know, and it was easy to do that. And, and in those days, nowadays, you know, people tell me, "Oh my, you'd be fired for that now." And <laughs> right, I would be fired for that now. But in those days, things were uh, maybe more civilized, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, and then. You know, I, I remember one time I didn't mention it in the book, but uh, I remember one time I uh, I just got it in my hair. I didn't uh, I got it in me to to go uh, around the uh, Tom Sawyer's Island. So I went down. I knew how to drive the uh, 
Tom Sawyer rafts. And this was maybe about eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And so I just jumped on one and started it up and, and took it off the, <laughs> the dock. And I, and I drove it all the way around Tom Sawyer's Island, all the way down to the Indian village and back and around again. And it was just really nice and pleasant. They, the, a lot of the animation still runs at night. So the Indians were sitting there doing their, uh, doing their stuff. Oh, that would be so creepy to me to go back there at night and have those, uh, the animatronics still going. Yeah, it was was a little bit, but it was also very, uh, very peaceful because it's very quiet back there. It was before the the landscaping uh, folks come in. So, uh, so unless it was, unless an occasional uh, animation guy was out there working, you pretty much had that area of the park to yourself. And so I'd, I'd drive around back there and just kind of just explore and, and then, bef- and then get the raft back to the dock before um, needed it. Uh, so I do that kind of stuff. I remember, <laughs> oh, lots of things. Uh, well, you got to have fun, right? Yeah, I mean, things I can't tell you, but uh, <laughs> thing, you know, we, there's the you know the cupola up on top of the haunted mansion attraction, mm-hmm. and that's that's when I think uh, everybody climbs up there. You know, that's interesting because we were talking about, I don't remember how that came up in conversation, but we were talking about, you know, who goes up there and blah, blah, blah. And I think, do you mention that in your book? Because I thought I read something about that. I was like, oh, Rand goes, Rand went up there. So apparently, apparently you can get up there. (laughs) Yeah, I think I I think I did mention it briefly because uh, one thing I didn't expect when I went up there was uh, the the graffiti. There's a tremendous amount of graffiti up there of all these old employees that have left their initials or their years, the dates that they worked. And it goes back, I mean, forever. And, uh, well, since the, since the attraction was built. So that was, I, I was really touched by that because of that, that connectivity between, you know, the earlier generations. And, and even though a lot of these folks were write-ops still, you know, we're all, we're all cast members. And so it was, it was kind of cool. And then, and then, you know, from the cupola, you can see out across the big river. And that, that part of the park was always my favorite area was the New Orleans Square area. Mm-hmm. Big river. I think that's almost everybody's favorite area. I mean, it's just so well connected together. The theming is great. It's just peaceful yeah. kind of over there. Exactly. You know? So there is an attraction I saw as one of the chapter headlines here that you got to talk about. Because I haven't <laughs> read about it yet, but I want you to tell me about it because... I love the people mover and oh. it's gone, but I see that you worked on it. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Cause there's like Teresa never rode the people mover. No. Yeah. Oh really? The people mover was before my time at my first time at Disneyland. So yeah, I d- unfortunately I did not get to ride it. Oh, that's too bad. It was a really cool attraction. It was, it was one of my favorites too. And, uh, um, but, um, so what my connection was with the people mover was when I worked in maintenance services and, and uh, what we did is, so the trains, if you recall, the people mover trains were four pods that were hooked together into a train and yep. the, and the uh, trains were moved around the attraction uh, by these uh, motors that were built into the actual track. So there was nothing on the actual trains that had an engine in it. These motors would, would turn and then that's what would push these trains around and that's anyway. what made it awesome because they wouldn't break down you wouldn't have like one thing broken down yeah exactly exactly when you know and i've heard stories about maintenance issues uh like for example there was a, a, a downslope if you recall the the track downslope as you came out of uh, uh america sings uh building and yeah. uh and so in the old days uh that was just a free 
a free fall that was just that the train would just coast down, but sometimes it would go too fast. And so they ended up having to figure out a way to build a braking system to slow the <laughs> slow the trains down <laughs> back in the early days and you know that the imagineers hadn't bothered to, to deal with and so but um but my connection with the attraction was a very big operation was during the winter months we'd cycle some of the trains so there was always one train over in the cycle shop and what i mean by cycling is that they would take cars off the attractions and they would rebuild them and this wasn't just people movers this was all the attractions they would take the pods, the doomobiles, the you know, whatever it is, the Autopia cars, and they would rebuild them from scratch and then and then and then put them back onto the uh, attractions. That's why they call it a cycle. Constantly huh. cycle things out. So the biggest the biggest things that they did were the people mover train. Because these the people mover train was maybe, I don't know, twenty feet, twenty five feet long. They were pretty long. And they were uh-huh. very, very heavy. Uh, very heavy. And so what we would do is they would take there was one piece of track over by the uh, monorail station where the if you recall the people mover train ran parallel yep. to the monorail station over in Tomorrowland, and that piece of track could come out it was you could unbolt it and it could be lifted out with a crane oh so the uh-huh and so the division had a, a mobile crane and so they would drive that into the park and this was something that we did on swing shift it took such a long time and uh, so they would drive out into the park and they would set it up right there and uh, they'd move the chairs there that's next to uh, Marland Terrace and they would set up the crane right there and they would go and they would lift up and they would pull that section of track out and the electricians would be there and the machinists would be there, uh, maintenance laborers would be there to help and then us and I was a teamster at the time. And what we had is we had these special trailers that we would use to move the trains with once they were taken off the track. And then there was also this thing that we had that was called the house. And it was a huge uh, steel uh, carrier uh, that was looked like an a open-framed house that we used, uh, that we would bring out to the, uh, to the attraction. And the crane would lift it up and place it into where the track section had been removed. And then the train would then be pushed onto this, uh, onto this carrier. And it was huge. It was just massive. It was just massive. And they would bolt the train in place. And then the crane would lift it up. And because uh, it was so heavy that this was always a very dangerous job because it pushed the crane capacity to the, to the very, uh, very limits of it, its operating parameter. And, uh, but then they would get it up and then they'd swing it over and then they would lay it, uh, lower it down and they would lay it onto a jack stand that were set to a certain height. And then we would back up a, another trailer. We'd push the train onto the trailer, lock it down, and then we would drive it through the park. Uh, down through um, between uh, the Subaride and Matterhorn, past the Fantasyland Autopia, down through the uh, past uh, Small Worlds, through the Small World Gate, and then down to the back areas. And then we would take it over to the rear side of the Pony Farm. It's not there. And there was this huge long track that we would slide it onto, and that's where it would be stored until the cycle shop could get to it. And uh, this was a long operation. These, uh, and then we usually would take a train off and we put a train on. And so it usually take maybe three hours um, to do this, three, four hours, and as long as nothing bad happened. Uh, but it was a big, big deal. And so we would do that. And like I said, we would do it little, once, twice a year uh, during the winter months. And uh, I remember one time uh, they had, so the, uh, the riggers, these were, the, these were iron workers, welders that would work with the crane. Uh, they had a new, inexperienced uh, uh, rigger on the crew, 
and uh, the the house when they went to go rig the house on the crane it's two uh <clears throat> two wire sections of wire rope that would come up and then they would put it onto the hook of the crane and what he did is he didn't set the uh, eyes in properly into the hook and he overlapped them so then when and so then when they lifted the house uh they got it into place they put the train on it and then, then when they lifted it off they lifted the train and the house up that eye uh there was so much pressure on the eye it slipped up and over the uh, the other eye and that caused the uh, house to jump about maybe three or four feet even though there was just a couple of inches um, and then that caused the whole crane to start to oscillate and uh, I was standing at maybe about 10-15 feet away watching this thing start to oscillate and I remember with the crane guy his name was Bob he was such a good good man and uh, he passed away a number of years ago but he was such a good guy I remember him just turned white and all the riggers just jumped away because they thought that this crane was going to go over. That wow. would and, be uh, terrifying. Yeah. Was, <laughs> like, oh, little, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a little bit. And, and he, uh, he did his magic and he was able to, to get everything to settle down. And, he, and, he, set, and he, he set the house down on the jack stands. And he was just a little guy. He, the guy was five feet tall. He was just a little fella. <laughs> and he jumped down off that crane and he grabbed that, uh, that rigger and he just uh, he just – I told him what for, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, and yeah, well, he deserved it. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm telling you this story. It wasn't like this happened all the time. It was sure. we were very professional, and and accidents were far and few between. But but it was a, uh, you know, it was a uh, an industrial kind of area that we worked in. So right. you know, operational accidents did happen. You were always having to be safe and safety conscious. And, that's the unfortunate thing with human errors. It happens. Right. But yeah, exactly. you're right. You know, some little, you know, some tiny little minuscule mistake can become something huge. I mean, the fact that those those riggers didn't exactly do get everything lined up like they needed to be. And it caused an entire, you know, the entire crane to kind of shake and wobble. It's just like, whoa, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. You know, but that was that was. You know, these things didn't happen, like I said, all right. that comment, though. So. Uh, but it, it's a good story, though, nevertheless. So a question we forgot to ask you at the beginning was, um, because I think we got, I got too excited getting into your history of maintenance stuff, was what is your favorite attraction? Uh, yeah, my favorite attraction uh, was the, um, oh my gosh, the uh, mine train through the Rainbow Caverns. Do you remember that oh. one? Oh, yeah, where uh, well now Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is there, but yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I've heard so many great things about it, and I've never experienced it myself. Obviously, I think it was gone before I was even born, but uh, I've yeah. seen some videos and some pictures, and it was gorgeous. Oh, it was the coolest thing. I um, I'm old enough to where I uh, I I remember riding it, kid in the in the early '70s. That's it. Really does stand out in my memory as far as uh, as far as a. Uh, just uh, it was just it was just the coolest thing. And if you if uh, if you if you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to look up. There's there's a ton of photos uh, and it's one of those things you kind of go, oh, wow, that's too bad. It's not there. You still see a little bits of it in the uh, in the Big Thunder attraction. Yep. You know, that little model tra- uh, model town, you know, at the uh, oh, load yes. unload. Yep. You know, that you go by the, the little half size or, or quarter scale uh, buildings. Those are those are from that attraction. And then you also see, uh, let's see, oh, yeah, um, uh, that bridge that you walk across. Um, As you're then, going back towards the, uh, you're going back behind Big Thunder, there's that cave, exactly. right? 
Yeah, exactly. And there's that cave to the left and then there's that big pond. That's what was left of the uh, of the bear pond there. And you still surprisingly, surprisingly, they've kept that with all the construction they did back there for Galaxy's Edge. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad they kept that because that was that's very picturesque spot. And and you see the little trout. There used to be in when that was part of the old attraction. Uh, the train would the, the the train would go over, and you look down and you would see all these black bears playing in the water, and they'd be trying to catch these trout, jump <laughs> out of the water now and then. And and the uh, for many many years the trout didn't work, and then they started getting the trout to work again. And so I think you still see the trout jump out uh, even yeah. today. That's that's but, it's just little things. That's what makes Disneyland so great. So those little things that yeah. kind of like little nods to a lot of old attractions. I think um, was it just a couple weeks ago we did a trivia episode where we talked about some things with um, like the the three like I call them the hosts of the Country Bear Jamboree are in the new oh. Winnie the Pooh attraction. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the, I have to say, yeah, uh, Bear Bear Band is probably my second. That was I was really sad when Bear Band was went uh, south, uh, went west. I. <laughs> um, it was uh, that was a great attraction. And well, it's still in Disney World, so when you go there, you can check it out. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what that's what's great about it. And, so, and I also liked um, uh, the America Sings. Do you, do you remember America Sings? See, I didn't see that one either. The only thing I know about it that I've seen personally has been the fact that they use some of the animatronics in Splash Mountain. Yes. Oh yes, yeah, exactly. You know, and that caused problems all by itself, uh, but uh, from a maintenance point of view. But uh, but yeah, but that was but that was a great attraction. America Singers was very cool. Did you ever work on Splash Mountain at all, doing any type of maintenance? I did um, when they were building it. So uh, I was involved oh, in, the, in, the, in the construction. Yeah, because I was in maintenance service at the time. So uh, and so we were always running jobs in uh, running. Uh, I drove a forklift at that time. So we were always doing work on. Uh, I uh, I offloaded the original logs, the original uh, logs that because uh, the attraction was supposed to be uh, much bigger than it ended up being, and they had. Uh, so I got this call one night to go over to the warehouse to unload all these all the uh, attraction logs. You know the one that you ride in, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. were huge. They were, they were like massive. They were probably I don't know. At the time, they seemed like they were twice the length of what the uh, the current one. <laughs> and um, so I remember offloading them with a uh, with forklift and and thinking they were really cool. And uh, I remember taking one down to the attraction that night, and then that was the last time I heard of it. And then I heard through the grapevine that when they stuck it into the attraction, the first uh, turn it hit, it it got wedged. Because oh no! Because what they had done is to save money, they started they started making the attraction smaller as they were building it. And, uh, but they didn't bother <laughs> to change the design of the vehicle. So oh, then, gosh. Uh, yeah, exactly. So then I, re- then I remember the, that, that week, um, we had to take, uh, we had to take one of these logs over to the cycle to, excuse me, to the staff shop. And the staff shop is, was the uh, department that did all the fiberglassing and plaster work and, and ceramic tiles, that kind of thing. And what they did is they actually cut one of these logs uh, right down the middle into two halves. And then they cut out like a five or six foot section. And then they fiberglassed the two ends together to make a shorter, uh, shorter uh, uh, boat. And then we put that in. Yeah. And that's, and then we put that in the attraction and they kept on having to cut sections out of it to make it shorter <laughs> and shorter before 
it would actually go all the way around the uh, the attraction. Wow. So they've had uh-huh. a Frankenstein, that original one, down. Exactly. And keep, and like, dwindling thing. it down. Oh, man. Yeah, and then the last thing we did is, you know, they had built all these logs that were too big. So uh, I remember uh, helping uh, demoing, demoing them out in the tent city. Uh, oh, no. up and, yeah. Rand, this is the first time I've heard about the length issue, but I've heard about the fact that they had to redesign the logs because they were they were getting people too wet and they were going too fast because mm-hmm. they actually built the yeah. built the flume steeper than they thought they were going to and Yeah, they were he- yeah, they were heavier. That's why the the so the initial logs I remember had just they looked like they'd been, you know, uh saw cut the ends. And um and so the and so from what I'd heard was that, yeah, that they, when you'd go down on that ramp, it was just, they, they would haul and they would just, and they would bottom out at the bottom of the, of the ramp, the down, the down ramp. And then, you know, you had that turn right yep. there yep. at the end, it would bottom out, the water would, would, would then rush back in, lift the log <laughs> up and then it would high, high side onto the, onto the, uh, the rock work. So that's why the, the logs now have that scoop that's cut out of yep. them in the front. Oh, mm-hmm. That's, that's. Yeah, that was there. They put that in as a break to slow the to slow the logs down, so the water kind of piles up. And knocks. you would think that they would have figured this stuff out before actually building the entire attraction, but uh, well, they didn't know. Trial and error, I suppose. Well, you remember the uh, so as I said, the attraction was was originally much larger, and yeah. uh, so and then when they downsized, they just didn't re-engineer a lot of the things that they should have probably re-engineered. <laughs> Yeah. The reason I was asking if you had worked on it is because, you know, in this past year, we've reported a lot about how there's a lot, seems to be a lot of maintenance problems with Splash Mountain with the animatronics and lighting in there. And oh. I was just, I just thought you might have shed some light haha, uh, on uh, why it would be so challenging to get in there and uh, and get the lighting and the animatronics working correctly. Oh, well, this is just anecdotally that I know from talking to other uh, maintenance people. But one of the one of the problems that they had when they built the thing was they built a, uh, they didn't really build any access ways to a lot of this equipment. Um, oh, sure. So it was all isolated in, in these little concrete casements or, or whatever. So it was very difficult for the guys to actually get to the stuff. And, um, and then, well, I know for the animation that they brought over from America Sings, uh, that was, was hydraulic. So it was hydraulic. And, and it was pointed out that the hydraulic animation, there'd be problems with combining that with a water attraction for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, normally in water attractions, you use pneumatic uh, uh, because you don't want the water contaminated by hydraulic leaks. Sort of right. Sure, yeah. And, uh, and so, they had, so they had issues for the first few years about that where when they get a hydraulic leak, they contaminate all that. So those those are some problems too. Did they convert those over eventually, Rand? Uh, no, they didn't. I know there was there was talk about converting them over to pneumatic, but they never did. They're still hydraulic, as far as I know. Gotcha. Wow. Well, you know that's a good point. I never. It's one of those things that you you I've gone past it. You know, however many times now. But you're right. Think about that when you're going through Splash Mountain and you're looking at these animated scenes and these scenes that maybe the lighting's could be a little bit better on. I don't understand how the workers get over to those areas because you. I mean, the whole exactly. thing is water. So yeah, they just yeah. they didn't exactly. build it with 
ha- keeping it up in mind, I guess, would be a good way of saying it. Yeah, and that, and that used to always be a problem uh, where the Imagineers would do things and not really take into consideration the make- maintenance cycle. Sure, um, yeah, sure. I understand they've gotten better with that uh, in the last few years, but I think that's always going to be a uh, an issue. You have, you have two competing points of view, you know, that's par for the course. Yeah. Well, finishing up here, um, because we've talked for quite a long time, but... Because uh, you have so many interesting yeah, stories. Yeah, I mean, right? I could probably talk to you for days. Um, so if you... So you worked at Disneyland before, obviously, but if you could work at Disneyland again, is there a position that you would do uh, different than what you did, or would you go back to the same position, and why? Oh, Huh. I, I've never actually been asked that question <laughs> ever. Uh, would I go? Would I go back? Now, every now and then, not every now and again, I threaten. I threaten Eileen with <laughs> going back and uh, going back to maintenance, and she says, "No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like it." And I think if I went back, you know, once maybe once I retire from what I do now, uh, if I if I got a job at Disneyland, I think I'd like to uh, to um, drive the. Uh, you know, the uh, omnibus. On oh, you know, that would like be a that. good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, when I when I first started working in the warehouse, I always wanted to work in the parking lot and, and drive drive the parking a lot trams. <laughs> I don't don't ask me why. I have no idea why. But I think it was so- the orange uniforms that they used to wear were pretty cool back in those days. So <laughs> Teresa can't understand this because she's never had to do it. But my friend Laura and I. We love the tram from the parking garage because it's like the first it's the first ride of the day. You get on there and like there's a whole lingo to it, you know. They've got like the little horn beeping and the dude <laughs> talking from the back to the front and like there's all the excitement that you're going to the park and everything. Teresa has she always stays at a hotel on the other side so she just walks over. <laughs> so she's never ridden the parking lot tram. And I told her I'm like, "Man, it's like it's so when we go whether we're parking in the ramp or not, she is going to be, we're going to ride the tram over there and back. So, yeah, you should. Uh, and Laura likes, Laura wants to drive it because when she drives her vehicle around, a lot of times when she gets lost, she'll drive in circles. Oh, and so she go. said, driving the job. tram in circles is perfect for her. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. But yeah. uh, I, I like it. I like it. Um, oh, yeah. So, where, if people want to pick up a copy of your book, where's the best place for them to go? Oh, probably, uh, probably Amazon. Uh, you can just search it, search by the title, uh, Elbow Grease and Pixie Dust. Uh, you can also get it through uh, the uh, publisher's website, uh, Theme Park Press. Um, but that I think that just links back to Amazon anyway, so probably Amazon. Interested. I personally read it, and I highly, highly would recommend it if you are interested in kind of what goes on behind, behind the castle, really, because most of the stories are kind of outside of what you see as a guest it's outside of the world that you're used to but it talks about how everything comes to be so that you can experience it all the time well and there's that whole history too mm-hmm. of eileen which i think yes. is a great story yes. that everybody even if you're not interested in mechanical or behind the scenes stuff i still think it's a great story to uh to read yes. and, and learn about so um absolutely sh- so rand thank you for sharing uh that with the world Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for reading it. I was just, it's just, you know, you know, write these things and I just never actually thought about anybody actually reading it. So it's like, that's, that's, that's a plus. <laughs> it was, right? a, yes, it was a very good read. And honestly, it was one of those that there were parts of it that I just, it was my, either my eyes were too heavy or I had something else that I had to go do and I was forced to put it down and it was hard to put down at times. So 
Well done. <laughs> now I'm probably going to read it right after this, and I'll probably not go to sleep until I'm finished with it. So We've talked to other cast members and stuff previously, and one thing that I think a lot of people realize now is that you can go to City Hall and fill out a cast member compliment card. Is there some way that... The, that guests going can can recognize maintenance people, or is there some way that that the average person can, you know, get some good feedback to them? It should it should work out the same way. I mean, if you're because often the maintenance folks are interacting with the guests at some point, you know, like on an attraction down or something. So if uh, you know they can they can report a, a maintenance person, uh, city hall just as much as they can a, a tour guide or a, or a merchandise. But and and of course it's it's even more appreciated because it's so seldom that it happens. Well, I know when we're there in August, Teresa and I will definitely keep an eye out for some maintenance folks and uh, get some names down and put some put some compliments in. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, they're the ones wearing wearing blue and carrying uh, tools. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Can't miss them. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Rand, for sp- uh, spending the time with us tonight and sharing all your information with our uh, listeners. And uh, I implore everybody to go out and uh, get a copy of your book. So thanks uh, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And, and have a good podcast. Great conversation with Rand. So we are now going to move on. We have some um, feedback, actually. All right. So this came in from Lance P. So this is in regards to um, our conversation last week when we were talking about how the crowds were just so crazy over New Year's Eve and how some of the fast pass lines, specifically it was for Indiana Jones, was backed up all the way practically into New Orleans Square. Yep. And so I was having a really hard time to kind of wrap my head around how I can understand a standby queue going on and on forever and ever, but I didn't understand why a fast pass line would be that long. And, you know, I felt like they that Disney would kind of control how many fast passes got. So we were just talking about that, basically. And so he had a follow-up to that, which I found really interesting because we were kind of making up numbers because we didn't know what the numbers were. Sure. But um, so Lance writes in saying, was just at the parks over Christmas and got some information regarding fast pass from some cast members. We had fast passes for Big Thunder Railroad and it went down. So we were told that our fast pass for the ride turned into a universal fast pass, which can be used at any ride. They said that 50 fast passes are issued for every five minutes. So that's 600 fast passes per hour. This was for Big Big Thunder and not sure how that translates for the other rides. Well, thank you so much, Lance, for kind of giving us that information. Because mm-hmm. honestly, I had no clue. Um, I think we were we guesstimated and way lowballed it and we're just, we were just using the number 100. So it's mind-boggling to me that it's actually it's 600 fast passes per hour that's crazy yeah it doesn't surprise me that it's high like that because you know standby lines are kind of brought to a crawl because of fast pass so um but i mean if so we're gonna pretend that that's what they were doing for indiana jones that day that they had 600 fast passes that they were giving out per hour so it makes sense that if the standby line was forever long, mm-hmm. which you know it was, so to filter in the fast pass people, if there were 600 fast pass people per hour, that's a lot. So I, you know, I guess it's we still have the question as to whether or not Disney changes those numbers. Is it always the same amount that they give out right. each hour, or on busier days do they kind of reel it in a little bit so they're not giving out as many fast passes to maybe help the standby line? go a little bit smoother. Who knows? I'm sure that there is algorithms that they have for all this oh, stuff. Oh, I'm sure there is too. 
Well, did you enjoy listening to this episode of DL Weekly? You could support the show for as little as 25 cents an episode. If you want access to the supporter chat like we always talk about, it's only 75 cents an episode. Please consider joining supporters like Kate A. and head over to dlweekly.net slash support. If you need some help planning your next trip to the parks, remember to contact our friends over at Concierge. Mike and James work hard to make sure you and your family will have a magical time at the parks. Head on over to dlweekly.net to find a link to the website to find out more. Well, now it's time to return to James and Trivia land to get the answers to the trivia yeah feel like you two feel pretty confident about yourselves this week at least for the first half find out (laughs) so question one was how many mountains does disneyland have we said four and four is the right answer uh question two in 1985 a dance club marketed young people was open in Fantasyland. what was this dance club called videopolis and that's right, too. Even though it was before Teresa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, In the vid- land BT. Videopolis, the quintessential. <laughs> before Teresa. <laughs> and then we got AT, after Teresa. Gotcha. Not oh, to be Lord. confused with an AT, AT. Oh. Which mm. is after Teresa, after tag. <laughs> Good God. Oh, my <laughs> okay. goodness. So for those of you who didn't know Videopolis, it was really only a hit for the first summer, and it only lasted until the end of the decade. So not not the big smash, but definitely quintessential 80s if you look oh, back fine. at it. it. <laughs> Third question from Lauren was, what inspired the Fireflies oh. in the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction? And we, I said Night Sky. And Teresa went on oh, something about I didn't know you actually Blue answered. Bayou. I thought you just listened to me ramble no. on about the Blue Bayou. <laughs> I thought it had something to do with their vision of having a restaurant um, there and having the guests having kind of a more romantic atmosphere for their restaurant. Teresa alternate tour guided it. Really, really, yeah, it's probably something really, really simple. Anyway, what's the answer, James? So according to Lauren, there was a janitor nearby when Walt was discussing the final touches on the ride, and having been from the South, that janitor suggested adding the fireflies for authenticity. Nice. Well, I'll be honest, when I lived in California, I never saw any fireflies, and when we moved to Wisconsin, there's fireflies all over the place. Maybe that's why. You know, my first gut reaction, which I knew was completely wrong, was, well, because we know from the princess and the frog that there are fun-loving, singing fireflies in the bayou. <laughs> <laughs> I need to watch that movie again. What? Oh, I thought you, no, you had it. Ever. Oh, mini panic attack. <laughs> yeah, so what a cool story. No, that's a good movie. All right, number All right, four. Last one from Daniel. What type of fish could visitors catch from the rivers of America back around the time that Disneyland opened? I think I said trout. I said carp. And the answer is catfish. Catfish. Yeah, that was my. I was debating between catfish and trout. Just love oh, it. What man. a simple attraction. Go and borrow a fishing pole and fish in the rivers of America off of the docks. Well, if you have trivia that you'd like to send James to stump us, send him an email at producer at doweekly.net. And uh, he's the only one that gets those emails to be able to stump us each week. Obviously, we don't ever get to see them because we are terrible at these. So, hey, you, you, went, you, you went two for four. <laughs> no, but the two that were sent in, I don't think were. I'm giving nope. myself a half point for my creative. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we'll be back next week with more Disneyland news and information. So, until then, go out and enjoy the parks. Ladies and gentlemen, Disneyland has now ended its normal operating day. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the Magic Kingdom and that you'll be back with us again soon.